All right, we are live. Welcome to the Deconstructing Data Podcast. I'm Jesse Lezak, CMO at BDEX, along with co-host Joshua Morgan, BDEX marketing extraordinaire, and of course, David Finkelstein, BDEX's co-founder and CEO. Today's guest is Nina Warnhoff. Nina is the Senior Data Scientist at Change Research, where she leads the data science team and is responsible for building custom models, predictive analysis, and polling methodology. Um, an experienced political campaigner as well, Nina held analytics roles on the Biden campaign, DNC tech team, Pete Buttigieg presidential campaign, and numerous state and local campaigns in her home state of Indiana, which I lived in briefly. Uh, so, but you're with Change Research now, and I was reading a little bit about it, so I wanted to share with the audience because it's a pretty neat story. So Change Research was co-founded by Mike Greenfield and Pat Riley. So Mike was the first data scientist at both PayPal and LinkedIn and starting running, running his own political opinion poll um, online in 2017. So, and then at that same time, Pat, she was a seasoned political professional who ran her own communications firm. She joined a network of tech executives to surface Silicon Valley, Valley solutions to improve civic engagement. So Mike and Pat bonded over a shared sense of urgency, both as parents to advanced humane and scientific, the, the humane and scientific world. And they were surprised by the state of polling. So high costs, long turnaround times, inaccuracy, and a lack of innovation. So that is kind of what inspired it. And it seems like you guys have done a lot since then. So um, 800 polls to date for campaigns. Um, media and causes at all different levels, all different budgets. So surveying nearly 2 million people I was reading and you guys have even run, won some pretty impressive awards um, that all kind of reflect on your accuracy. So that is also really, really interesting. So it sounds like change research is precise and we love talking about data precision. So um, if anyone in the audience has any questions throughout this discussion, feel free to plug those into the comments. But thank you so much for being here, Nina. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. And would you mind, could you please start from the beginning and tell us your story and what inspired you to get into political data science? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, well, from the time I was a kid, um, I've always really been interested in politics. My family is very political. Um, my mom was on the school board growing up. She ran for mayor when I was in college. Uh, we Politics was just something we really talked about a lot. That was a big part of our family culture and something I was really interested in. Um, so when I, I went to college at Indiana University, I studied political science and math and was always just loved the politics side of things. I'm very ideologically driven and motivated by um, supporting progressive causes and ideals and uh, was also always good at and really enjoyed math. So those two things uh, were able to come together and I got plugged into the democratic kind of data world. Uh, so from working on campaigns in you know, Bloomington, Indiana and working on a lot of state and local races to spending a lot of time in Washington, DC, I was able to intern at the DNC on the tech team um, and uh, a couple other exciting organizations out in, in DC and kind of just get to know know the space and, and learn a lot along the way. And uh, I've always really loved campaigns. So um, when Pete Buttigieg 
announced he was running for president as as a Hoosier. That was really, really exciting to me. And I was able to join that campaign when it was about 30 people um, in 2019 and uh, in, around April of 2019 and uh, was on that team, helped build out a team of about 30 data and engineering folks. And by the end of the campaign, there were 2000 people on staff total in about a year. So a really amazing opportunity and experience to scale a huge team and have a really big impact. And then uh, jump on the Biden campaign to help out for the last you know, four or five months of the cycle and uh, then made my way to change research, um, which is a really wonderful place that helps campaigns up and down the ballot have access to this public opinion data uh, and get an accurate and fast read on what voters actually think in this specific moment, um, the world's a crazy place right now, and it's always important to test how uh, test messaging, test what people are feeling in the specific moment that you're running a campaign in, and uh, we're able to do that quickly and cheaply and help people, and most importantly, accurately. So that's that's a lot of what we're focused on at Change Research now. Very cool. Yeah, that's great, Nina. Um, so great to meet you, and I love how you sort of found your path between the combination of politics and math. I think there's a lot of people that wouldn't even make the connection between the two and, and you found sort of your place in the world uh, uh, by connecting the two. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, so, you know, um, as Jesse mentioned, I'm the co-founder and CEO of BDEX and, and, you know, I've kind of uh, found my path with respect to uh, looking at things similarly in the sense that I, you know, always enjoyed sort of data, um, but also um, intrigued by marketing and advertising. And so, you know, we primarily, you know, help consumer brands, marketing agencies, and now political organizations as well, uh, understand their audiences um, and target those audiences through advanced techniques with identity resolution, machine learning, data as a service, you know, obviously data being the core to, to all of that for us. Um, I think it'd be interesting to see where this conversation takes us. Um, as Jesse said, precision is super important to us. Um, and additionally, data quality is our standard. So uh, advertisers today face uh, so much noise and bad data. So we help them cut through that, um, all that bad data out there and, and find um, what's good. And so I'm interested in hearing your perspective on what you think the biggest challenges are for political candidates, what they face in regards to collecting analyzing uh, quality first party data and how the best campaigns reducing the noise, uh, how their best campaigns are reducing the noise from the bad data. Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, well, political campaigns are kind of an interesting context because on the one hand, it's it's a really simple problem. You're trying to get more votes than anyone else. And that's, that's it. <laughs> that's pretty much the entire goal. Um, but obviously once you dig in a little bit, the, there's so much more complexity there. Um, and then additionally, um, when when you register to vote, which is you know the only way you can cast your vote in a lot of states when you show up on election day, that list of everyone who's registered to vote is available to campaigns. So we actually do have a list of every voter who basically has the ability to elect or not elect you on election day. Um, but there are huge problems with that data. It is, uh, a, as you said, data quality is always an enormous issue and it's often really out of date. Um, people move, people change their names, uh, people make 
typos. People have bad handwriting. There are a ton of different things there. Um, and obviously not everything centers around the voter file. When you go to target ads on Facebook, when you go to uh, make calls to voters, uh, when you knock on doors, that's not necessarily all stemming from the voter file and having being able to do that identity resolution and figure out who, if, you know, this, Joshua Morgan is the same Joshua Morgan who responded to a survey is a really complicated problem and having that understanding is hard. So um, polling is a really great tool to kind of get that fresh data from voters. Uh, it's really hard to have kind of faith in the, the quality of data you're getting from anywhere. Um, and the best way to do it is to hear directly from voters themselves who are self-identifying as people who are going to be voting in your election and who and to understand what that looks like. And we have a lot of spend a lot of our time making sure that we're reaching the right people who are going to be representative of who's actually going to turn out to vote on Election Day. So, so those are some of the that's kind of the core problem with poll challenge of polling is are the people who are answering your surveys the, the type of people who are going to be voting and are they representative? Um, it's hard to make sure that you're not just getting like the hyper engaged people who are spending all their time thinking about politics, because yep. those are those are not the everyday voters who are going to win mm -hmm. and lose elections. Um, so it's making sure that you have kind of that well-rounded understanding of the electorate and uh, even the people who, you know, aren't going to be volunteering on campaigns every day, but they're still going to turn out to vote and uh, making sure that you have ways to reach them. And uh, whether that's in the, the main way we would do that is by recruiting through uh, online advertising through Facebook, um, and then also some text web as well, where we text people a link to take our surveys. Um, so that kind of helps us target a geography and make sure that everyone who is eligible to vote in that area can come into our surveys and tell us what they think. Yeah, that's interesting. In fact, to your point, probably trying to reach some of the less engaged people is more important than those highly engaged people. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, a lot of uh, at first glance, I think a lot of people might assume that it's might worry about reaching people who who aren't going to actually vote in elections. But it turns out, you know, the people who are taking a lot of surveys and who people who want to take surveys are it, it's not random. Like the people who are more engaged in civically in turning on elections, those are actually those are those are survey takers and those are uh that's not just a random group of people so what we think what we worry about the most is or something i worry about a lot at least is making sure that we're reaching those voters who might not vote every time but uh they're still going to make up a ton a large portion of the electorate so i love stories i love storytelling and so i have had a blast listening to some of the stories that jesse has when she was working on in Iowa for the Democratic Party uh, back in 2008. And so I would love to hear a story or two that you have found that has been like interesting with your experience and, you know, the political campaign experience. Yeah. Um, I think the, the Iowa caucus in, in 2020 was a really, really insane time. I think uh, a lot of people heard about it, but um Basically, the, the Iowa Democratic Party kind of tried out a, a new app to record their caucus results. Um, caucuses are a pretty funny way of electing people. Uh, most people will probably never experience them. But basically, at 6 p.m. on a Monday night 
in February. Everyone in Iowa who the only way you can cast your vote is by going to a gym or a church basement. It's, it's kind of like your polling location. And you stand around for often like two, three hours and basically kind of go go stand in the corner where your candidates people are standing. And that's how you vote. And it's a it's always been a crazy process. But um basically they they tried to do this and added a piece of technology that wasn't turns out wasn't wasn't really ready for prime time. And that meant that we had no results uh the night of the caucus. We had no results until the middle of the This next happened day. in twenty twenty? This happened in twenty twenty. Okay. Uh, it happened to- I'm pretty sure it was 2012 because I went back in 2012. Yeah. Um, it, and we had something similar happen. <laughs> yeah. And this is, yeah. And if you read back, um, I think in maybe 2008 on the Republican side, they announced the wrong winner for the, of the caucus. And like it's three like weeks later. Technology. I mean, literally you're putting people in a gym and they're like standing in a corner and yeah. then people like trying to collect that data and send it to pollsters and like other political mm-hmm. ops. Yeah, it's a really crazy process. Um, But we, so we ended up basically on the fly having to figure out, we had a whole process ready for how we were going to spin the different results, how we were going to like the different stories we were going to be telling that night. And it turned out we just had no data. So on the fly, we had to basically build and come up with a new system for trying to get, figure out what these results actually were by relying on a network of hundreds of volunteers at these, you know, 1600 different locations throughout the state of Iowa, sending us pictures of pieces of paper and having people transcribe these into spreadsheets and posting them publicly on our website. Um, I think for a good part of those 48 hours, our campaign was the campaign website was the most reliable place to get that data. And um, it was a lot of not sleeping for a long time. There were some rule changes that were made on the fly. There was a lot of real craziness. Um, and I think uh, it, it was really challenging. And, you know, I think, you know, for the record, Pete Buttigieg did win the Iowa caucus. He got more delegates than anyone else. And that is how you win the nomination in these situations. Um, but no one knew. And we couldn't make that call competently for days. Um, and in this sequential primary system, we, you know, had to go on and the candidate had to fly to New Hampshire and be focused on that next that next contest. Um, but it was a really, really crazy time. And um, that that was a, a, a very, a very wild experience that was, mm. you know, both really, really exciting and also unbelievably frustrating in the time. But um, it was a it was a crazy time. So, yeah. What's well, always interesting because they're like, the results are in kind of not really, but they are, but you're going to have to wait. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's kind of this forecast of kind of the expectation, but sometimes it doesn't always. Uh, so there's kind of this like roller coaster of like emotions going into it. Yeah, absolutely. And in in 2020, the the Iowa caucus was unbelievably close. Um, there are like state delegates that are elected that determine the winner, and um, I think they're like. There are thousands of them, and um, we won by, I think, like 4.2 delegates. Um, it was unbelievably close. And in 2016, it was also extremely close between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders as well. So it's um, it's crazy how these, you know, how close it can be even and consistently when in these contests. 
Absolutely. And data is key. And when you don't have data, you're kind of put into the dark. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't have any stories to tell. <laughs> um, yeah, is it Budajeg? I always I like it. Budajeg. Yeah. So kind of what is your experience um, with data on like his campaign and Biden's campaign um, in terms of like uh, targeting for paid media campaigns? Yeah, so um, I, I primarily worked on the paid media side of things on, on the Buttigieg campaign. Um, that was that was a different team that was very, very good at their jobs on the Biden campaign that, that I wasn't a part of. But um, we, with, it, with a national campaign, your focus is really around kind of geographic resource allocation um, because of the way the electoral college is set up. Um, and with these delegate systems, you, you really only care about getting the plurality of the votes. Uh, you don't get extra points for winning by a lot. Uh, you really just want to get to 50%. And any dollar you spend getting to 51, 52, 53% is, is kind of waste. So it's this interesting optimization problem where you're really focused on just showing up, getting, getting past that 50% margin. Um, and so with with TV buys and digital ad buys, that was that was the main focus is making sure that we were impact um, maximizing the impact per dollar of those things. And obviously, with digital ads, we had the ability to target really precisely where we were uh, going to be reaching people, uh, which is a huge huge benefit. Um, with TV, you're working with media markets, which are kind of arbitrary lines that definitely don't align with um, political lines so there we were always trying to focus on like okay we're really trying to focus on florida here but it's going to be overlapping a little bit into georgia and that's okay because we also care about georgia a lot um but in other places you know ohio is going to be competitive but unfortunately indiana is not going to be that competitive so we don't want to spend money at overlapping and spilling over into indiana so there were different situations where you're, you're having to think through all those different things. But um, really, we were always focused on that, on making sure that we were reaching the right people geographically. And then separately, uh, have different messages that were focused on different communities to make sure that they understood what these candidates and what these policies were going to be doing for those communities. So um, different demographic breakdowns have uh, different priorities about what when they're casting their vote and making sure they were speaking to the right thing to the right people is always a priority. Well, awesome. So one more question for you. Uh, what would you say are your like three to five, say biggest takeaways from working on Dudegeg's campaign, Biden's campaign, and then like the DNC team uh, tech campaigns? Yeah. Um, I, th I think the number one thing is that the team is always the most important thing. Um, in these situations, things are things are changing really quickly. And um, basically, I uh, on the Buttigieg campaign, I I had like four different jobs over the course of a year. Um, the teams are growing, things are changing, and having people who are going to be able to roll with those changes and perform well in all of those different situations is what's most important. People who are going to learn quickly people who are going to um, prioritize kindness and these really high stress situations is, is really important. Like no one's, no one's good enough at their job to be mean. Like that's, that just doesn't work, um, especially in these high stress situations. So that's, that's, I think the number one thing. Um, 
And then also you just, you have to move quickly. That's another big thing. Um, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And it's always better to have, have something quickly than to have the perfect thing three weeks late. And uh, making sure that you can quickly understand what's happening to be able to make those initial right decisions. Um, even if it's not perfect, to be able to get on the right track early on is such such an important priority. Um, and then also like trust, trust the experts. I think we always want to have data to be able to back up every decision. But if you don't have data, you shouldn't just throw your hands up. You should, you should ask someone who's done this before. You should ask people who are experts. They're experts for a reason and they're gonna, they're gonna put you on the right track. And down the road, you can get the data you need to kind of, you know, maybe refine that take or refine those decisions, but um, making sure that you're trusting the people who, who have done this before and are experts is, is always really important. Yeah, absolutely. That was a great, those were all great questions, Josh. Um, and building off of it, Nina, in terms of the data you had access to in your previous and current role, um, what do you think? could help you the most or could have helped you the most? Is there a particular data segment that it was like, wow, I wish I wish we had this, then we would have known something. I mean, besides like the Iowa caucus and like trying <laughs> to like, you know, tally up voters. Um, but like when it comes to, you know, targeting people, um, what, what could have helped you? Yeah, I think uh, one, of the, one of the kind of core data set that we always wish we had is a list of unregistered voters. Um, being able to really find those those people who maybe just haven't thought about voting in the past. Maybe they moved recently. Maybe they just became eligible and no one, no one told them like, hey, you have to go register to vote. Um, and being able to give those people the information of, it, it's not hard to vote and it's so important. And here's how you can participate and here's the steps you have to go through would be is always something we're looking for and trying to find more ways to build out more complete lists of those unregistered voters so we can we can reach them and help them understand the how they can participate in the process. Um, and then one of the things that was really amazing that we did on the Buttigieg campaign was um, we used Mechanical Turk to basically collect like really fast, cheap survey responses in really important moments. So during a debate, or after a big news event, um, just getting a couple hundred survey responses really quickly that weren't weren't the highest fidelity survey responses. They weren't gonna, they weren't something we were gonna bet the house on. But to get a quick pulse check on something, to know know what to be able to make those quick decisions was really amazing. Um, and in a lot of ways, that was kind of like a, a lower fidelity version of what Change Research does, um, collecting these online survey responses to try and quickly and cheaply understand what's happening so that you can make those decisions instead of having to, you know, with a more traditional pollster, maybe it's often a more like a weeks long process of um, writing a survey, reserving time in a call house and going through the process of like calling a lot of voters. And it's, it's not really the same and often the moment has passed. So that was a really, really valuable thing. Um, and then also just, the wealth of data that the DNC has invested in putting together for Democratic campaigns up and down the ballot to use is really phenomenal. Um, the DNC tech team has made enormous strides in the last um, last couple cycles, and 
so that people from, you know, your local school board to Joe Biden are all building off of one another's data is really, really incredible. And that kind of compounding data asset is one of those things that just you have to have a central organization to be maintaining and building on. And that's something that has really, really made made our campaigns much more successful over over the last five or 10 years. And are you referring to sort of the work done out of like NGP van? Yeah. Yeah. So that that um, that's kind of the front end for it. But um, the data itself um, is is housed and owned by the DNC and is um, most often accessed through NGP van, but uh -huh. is also is also accessible through any any database um, and through a lot of different other tools in the progressive industry. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So like Nation Builder might be an equivalent with that. Yeah, Nation Builder, a lot of different kind of field tools, um, things like like Through Talk, things like Mobilize, um, these different tools that let you kind of reach voters in more effective ways. Um, whether you're calling them, texting them, knocking on doors, having conversations with your friends, those kinds of things. Okay, got it. Interesting. I, I think it's cool that you use the mechanical torque to get, you know, sort of on the fly voter um, insights, um, polling information. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Good use of it. Um, definitely a different use of it. Um, so uh, I'm curious to hear uh, what your team is finding themselves working on most this election season. Uh, would you say there are more efforts going into understanding and analyzing the, your, you know, the, your target audience? Are you finding more attention being paid to building custom models, predictive analysis or polling? Where's, where's that the biggest effort? Yeah. Um, well, our, our top priority is always supporting kind of the, the core polling operations that are the core business at Change Research. So making sure that we're reaching the right voters and getting the right people into our surveys. So again, we use Facebook and that ad platform extensively, and that is always a little bit of a moving target. So we are consistently testing and keeping an eye on who's coming into our surveys, and making sure that it's the people who need to be represented there. So that's a, that's a lot of what we're doing. And also just kind of the general maintenance. Um, we, we are a small team. Um, I, there's one other person on the data science team at Change Research. So there's a lot of balls that we're keeping up in the air to support that core work. And we're also doing through our kind of non-political arm and bold research, a lot of work with uh, different energy organizations, different corporate organizations, um, different government clients to make sure that they have what they need. And uh, that that is kind of a different class of work that's focused on people who aren't just registered voters and using more census data, using more consumer data to make sure that we're reaching the people who need to be reached for that work as well. Um, so that's, that's some of what we're doing. Um, I think, especially in the, the world is like, you know, the world kind of a crazy place right now, uh, has been for a little while, but continues to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially with, you know, the recent Supreme Court decisions, which with overturning Roe v. Wade, a lot of people are kind of re-digging into those really core questions as things are changing to see how can we talk to voters about this effectively? How can we help them understand what what we can and can't do and what, what the different candidates are going to be pushing for if they're elected. Uh, so digging into those things. Uh, and then we are doing a lot of custom modeling work right now. 
So having having a model that's built for your specific needs and your specific uh, situation and how you're going to be using it can be can really help your your efforts be so much more cost effective um, and usually pays for itself extremely quickly. So those are those are that's another class of work that we're we're doing for a lot of different candidates right now. Oh, that's really cool. Great. Yeah. So sort of switching gears, um, Nina and David. So today we released VDEX's 2022 political advertising sentiment survey collected from 260 voters and the results, here's what they show. So we had 77.7% of respondents report TV news and social media are their primary sources for political news. However, 76.5% of respondents report that they tend to tune out or ignore political ads in the media. Um, these results indicate only 1% of survey respondents are paying attention to political ads on TV and social media. Um, so then we had 51.9% of respondents say they watch specific news channels and read from certain publications for political coverage. So knowing all of this, what can campaigns do to target their audiences deterministically to reach them at the right time in the right place? Yeah, I think this is this is the big question in a lot of ways. Um, but I think I think one thing is creative is unbelievably important. Um, you can spend a lot of time optimizing the audiences you're targeting, but if you're not saying the right thing in the right way with the right messenger. It's, it's not going to land. And that's how you can get those kind of big step function increases in efficiency um, and impact. And that's making sure that you're, you're testing creative extensively. You're doing the work through focus groups, through qualitative research, and through survey research to test messages and understand what, what people care about um, helps make sure that people aren't tuning things out. Um, and then also, um, you know, obviously, I think a lot of people, us, probably many of us included, are tuning out a lot of the ads we see on a daily basis. But um, it's not just about kind of what what ads you're looking at. It's also about like even if I don't look at an ad, if my mom or my friend sees an ad and then posts about it on Facebook or sends me a text about it or brings it up the next time we have lunch, like those kind of downstream effects can be really important and can make an impact on, and that, that can often be where the real persuasion happens. Um, and then also um, for kind of these deeper persuasion conversations, I think politics is very polarized in a lot of ways. And you're, you're, a lot of people aren't probably gonna change their minds about these core values issues um, because of a Facebook ad. Uh, it's really important to have these deep conversations through the people with the people in your life. Um, it's not just, it's about having those relational conversations and talking to the person in your life who you don't, maybe don't agree with on everything, but trying to help them understand where you're coming from and why you're supporting the candidate you're supporting and having that. So that's a, that's a thing a lot of campaigns are really encouraging volunteers to do. Instead of just calling strangers, talk to the people in their lives about what what they care about, why they care about politics, and why they care about supporting the candidates they're supporting. So that's another really important thing. Um, but with change research, I think one of the things that's interesting about our work and is is really different is we're not actually trying to convince people of anything with our ads. We're not trying to change people's minds. We're just trying to understand where they are at that moment and gather information. So we're not trying to optimize for 
cost per completes, we're trying to get the most representative sample and just get people in the door. So that's an interesting thing that is pretty different from how most pretty much everyone else uses political uses ads. It's not about convincing someone to change their mind or to take action. It's about getting someone to tell us what they think at that moment, which is pretty different. Yeah, that's cool. Collecting qualitative data. So David, what do you think about that article we released today? It got published in, I think, Media Post. Um, so I was excited to see that. But in terms of like what campaigns can do to make sure they're reaching the right people at the right time, what would you say? You're on mute, David. Sorry about that. Um, one of the things that I actually, that Nina just said, um, I thought was, you know, something that was mentioned in the survey that we did, which was the, uh, the fact that people are more persuaded by people within their own network. And I don't remember what the statistic was on that. There was a, there was a number there. Um, and I find that super interesting because it, I think it's super important for people to, um, from a political advertising standpoint to recognize that really their goals really should not be necessarily to be persuading people, but to get them to talk about the issues. Um, because as they talk about the issues, they share that and their, with their network and, and that's how they influence, you know, a, more of a mass of people rather than just, you know, one individual. So I, I think that that's a, an interesting uh, perspective when it comes to political advertising that a lot of people, we haven't seen a lot in the past, um, you know, political advertising that are specific, specific to an issue tied to a, an audience or a direct, uh, targeted to an audience that is um, concerned about that issue because just getting them to talk about it, that's what works, right? Um, the more the politician talks, the less people listen. The more you people in your network talk, the more you listen, right? So I think that that's, that is uh, an approach that they need to think about in political advertising going forward. And I think we'll see a lot more of that in this, uh, in this coming uh, political uh, uh, season, for sure. Yeah, I think any time that we can get our politicians talking less is, is, is a good one. So, but, uh, it's true. Yeah. So uh, thinking about your work over at the Change Research Centers and, you know, it's around using survey methodology to help candidates and organizations uh, to reach voters most effectively, what tips do you have on that data application? Yeah. Well, first I would say um, the pollsters who are actually working with clients and designing these surveys are incredible experts. Um, they have so much experience understanding, figuring out what questions to ask, understanding your needs, and then also being able to dig into this really large amount of data and figure out, pull out the things that are most important. So uh, working with an expert on this is so, so valuable and listening to them and really engaging with them is one of the most important things you can do. And we have a team of really incredible people from a ton of different backgrounds who are able to do this. Um, and then uh, I think one of the great things about us is we're able to kind of get into the field really quickly. Um, we often, we've, I think maybe a week or two ago, had a client who was like, hey, we need result results in like the next 48 hours. And we were able to basically immediately create a, write the survey, 
get it into the field and get results, top line results to them really quickly. So that kind of agility helps people uh, be able to make those decisions quickly when there are those moments that are, you know, they come rarely, but they're really important to capitalize when they come along. Um, and then making sure that you're using those results to drive decisions and, and, and also kind of knowing going in, like what, what levers do we have to pull? How much money do we have to spend? How, how are we going to spend it? What are the different things we can do? So whether that's producing the best type of creative to get it out there, whether that's having a broad set of creative that can be targeted at different audiences separately, whether that's finding the thing that's going to appeal to the most people um, and making sure that you kind of know what what the end is going to look like and uh, what things you're going to be able to optimize is really, really important. So those are, I think those are some of the things that I'd focus on. Um, and then also just, it's always like, this is not unique advice, but like being authentic to voters, like people, people can tell when politicians are just like spouting the same thing over and over again. And really, really being authentic about like what, what you care about, why you're in this and what your campaign's fighting for is really important. That's all good. <clears throat> Thanks for sharing. So this question is for both Nina and David. I'll start with Nina. Um, and we primarily target, you know, B2C marketers um, who are targeting and trying to understand, you know, audiences that are trying to consume products and services, not necessarily political content. Um, but so I'm curious, you know, we, we ask a lot of people, you know, what B2C marketers can learn from B2B marketers and vice versa. Um, and so I'm curious to know, what do you think B2C marketers could learn from political campaign operatives? Yeah. And vice versa, what political operatives might be able to learn from B2C marketers? Yeah, I think, I think the thing that like campaigns are best at doing is just moving quickly. Um, we are, it, and it's, it's always out of necessity. Um, always the, the resource you're shortest on is always time on a campaign. Um, you have this very, very strict immovable deadline of an election day, and that's, that's kind of it. And really making sure that you're not letting perfect be the enemy of good and that you're just getting started from somewhere and being willing to make changes along the way, I think is really important and something that campaigns, you know, tend to be good at. And I think that's, that's something that yeah, that we, we generally do a good job of. And then what about the other way around? What do you think that political campaign operatives could learn from B2C marketers? Um, I think uh, the value of testing is like obviously so, so important. I think it's much less industry standard to be you know continuously A-B testing things, both with different creatives and also among different audiences and making sure that that's that rigorous testing is just built into everything you do. It's so valuable. It saves you so much, saves you money. It makes things work better. And that's, that's something that often like we don't have the systems set up for. Mm, yeah, it makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. I was going to say something similar actually, because if it seems to me that that brands, when it comes to B2C marketing, spend a lot of effort, AB testing, trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work whether it become, you know, whether it's with respect to targeting or creative, um, mm. even down to, you know, the, the little nitty gritties of what's included in the creative, you know, do I put, put a dog in it? Do I put a cat in it? Or oh, I need a dog for this audience. I need a cat for this audience and you know, whatever it is, they, 
they, I, I would even say it's A-B testing. It's like A, B, C, D, E, all the way through. <laughs> a lot of times on the BDC side. Um, and, uh, you know, like, like you said, I don't think that there's the time, right, on the political campaign side to really do all of that. Um, maybe that will change over time because, you know, as, you know, technology advances, we're, we're able to do a lot of that stuff on the fly a lot more. So it, it may be interesting to see that over time, maybe political campaigns will be able to do more of that because it'll all happen so quickly on the fly. Um, uh, going the other way around, as far as, uh, you know, what, what B2C could learn. I think it's interesting uh, from the political side, what you were talking about is how time is never on your side. I think that it, on, on the BDC side, they always feel like they have a lot of time, right? You know, time is definitely on their side in that sense. Like there's plenty of time to figure out what, what to do with this campaign or that campaign. Um, but I think that, you know, in the political environment, they're able to do so much so fast and get results um, because of that time pressure. And so I think, I feel almost sometimes like the BDC side needs to work as if they had that time pressure because they could probably achieve a lot more, a lot faster um, and, and reach goals faster if they had that kind of time pressure and, and didn't sort of um, have the luxury of time. Absolutely. That really resonates because I started my career in politics and then went to um, tech startups. And I think that working under that time pressure actually ended up helping me quite a bit um, because I had this sense of urgency um, that I think helped me succeed quite a bit. So I think you're absolutely right, David. Um, and B2B and B2C in terms of having that sense of urgency. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we still have a lot of questions, but speaking of time, we're running out of time. Yeah. Um, so David, Josh, do you both want to pick one more question before we wrap this up? Yeah, I have one more. So um, for Nina, so I, I know some businesses are starting to panic, obviously, about a recession and are adjusting their budgets budgets to focus more on data and, and efficiency. Um, do you see any trends towards the increased use of data due to the recession or still even as we evolve from the pandemic? Uh, if so, what weighs on the political side? Yeah, um, on the political side, um, we're obviously operate kind of more on campaign cycles and electoral cycles than anything. So we're, everyone's really ramping up for the midterm elections right now. And that's, that's the big focus and is not, not as, you know, held to the kind of economic constraints. But um, on some of our more corporate and non-political clients are definitely uh, thinking about this, as, as is everyone. Um, I think, you know, some of the, the things that we, we talk about a lot is just the value, like the cost of running inefficient programs when you're flying blind is so high. And uh, having effective targeting that's informed by, you know, survey research and modeling in some situations is so just pays for itself so quickly so i think that's something that we're um, going to be seeing a lot more of and making sure that people are spending that those dollars effectively and not just uh not just kind of throwing out a smaller budget and making sure that they're using the budget effectively effectively definitely yeah makes sense well in closing um, we would love to get input from listeners about what or who you would like to hear on the Deconstructing Data podcast. What topics would you like to cover? 
Um, and are there any guests you think we should talk to? We'd love to hear from you. Send us your qualitative feedback to info at um, But thank you so much for talking with us, Nina. I, um, this was a really interesting conversation. I feel like we probably could have talked for a couple more hours. So I'm bummed that it's already five o'clock. So I guess thanks for that. <laughs> thank you all. It was really, really great to talk. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay, take care.